Father, thank you so much for the promise that you've given us in Matthew 18, that wherever two of, or three of us are gathered together in your name, that you are right here in the midst of us. What an amazing promise that is, to know that the God of the universe cares about what's happening right here in Templeton, right here in this church. You care about our lives. You care about being here with us. And God, we want to have open hearts and open ears. And so right now, we just want to give you full permission to whisper or even to yell in our ears through the power of your Holy Spirit that we could hear your voice this morning. Thank you for giving us open hearts. Thank you for giving us open ears. Thank you for speaking to us through the power of your Holy Spirit and because of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Lord, bless us this morning through your word. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. 150 years ago, Hudson Taylor was a man on a mission. I don't know how many of you have ever read the stories about Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to the inland of China. He was one of the first missionaries going to China. He had incredible faith. Here he was taking his own life into his own hands as he went to, uh, to China. I invite you to read the book, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. It, it details how he had such faith, how he was able to believe in God, to see him through this mission of going to a land where people hadn't gone before. But as he was there in China, he began to feel a burden to help other people to become a part of this mission to China, to helping people in China hear the good news about Jesus. So as he came back and he was working on recruiting missionaries to go to China, you know, you would think the first thing that he needed to do would be to get millions of dollars together so that he could get the funding necessary to be able to back these people in going to China. Wouldn't that make sense to you? I would think it would take a lot of money in order to send people to China. But here's what Hudson Taylor ended up doing. In his own words, he said that he was looking for missionaries who must be, quote, willing to prove their faith by going to the inland of China with only the guarantee that they carried in their Bibles. He said, I want you to get on a ship, travel to China, and I want you to go with just your Bible in your hand, and that is what I'm sending you with. Wait a second, uh, Hudson, why don't you send a few thousand dollars with me too, uh, some ideas of... No, I just want you to believe that God will see you through. In fact, he went on to cite Jesus' promise in Matthew 6 that he will, if we seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto us. And then he wrote this, If anyone does not believe that God spoke the truth, it would be better for him not to go to China to propagate the faith. If he didn't believe it, if, if he did believe it, surely the promise sufficed. The, the promise of Jesus is clear. If you seek first the kingdom of God, if you're going to China as a missionary, Jesus will provide for your every need. Just take your Bible and go. He went on to say, God sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect him to send three million missionaries to China. But if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. What faith, huh? To think that we can send missionaries out and and they could just trust in Jesus, just like the, the Israelites going to the wilderness. Hudson Taylor says, we have the promises of God. 
We have Jesus saying that if you seek first His kingdom, all these things will be added unto you. Let's stand on the promises and let's go in faith. And because of that, many people in China were able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many people were able to go out as missionaries trusting in the simple promises of Jesus. And Jesus saw them through. I want to have that kind of faith, don't you? That faith that when I'm facing difficult times, when I'm facing financial struggles, whatever I'm facing in my life, that I recognize that Jesus has what I need, that His promises are sure. And friends, as we continue looking at the Laodicean church, I believe that this is crucial for the Laodicean church to understand. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 3. We continue to look at this key passage in the book of Revelation because this has to do with us. We're the ones who are the people of the judgment. We're the ones who are standing on the cusp of Jesus coming back. We are the Laodicean church. So we need to heed this message more than anybody else. Revelation chapter 3. We've read these words before, but Jesus, verse 15, says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. I wish that you had the faith to go out and be a missionary. I wish that that you could trust that I would sustain you to tell your neighbors, to tell those at work. I wish that you had that faith so that your works could be increased. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Then his solution. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now last week, we looked at these white garments. What does Revelation reveal that the white garments represent? Revelation chapter 19. Does anybody remember? The righteous acts of the saints. Revelation depicts them as wearing these beautiful white robes. And these white robes, we're told, represent their righteous actions, their loving actions, that they represent the loving character of Jesus to the world around them. These people who are ready for Jesus to come back, who are waiting for Jesus, they're loving the world the way Jesus loved it. And in fact, Revelation describes them as being without blemish, as being spotless. And we looked at how that robe represents the character that God would have His people to have in the last days. And last week we talked about how that robe was taken away from us back in the Garden of Eden when we decided to separate ourselves from God, from that loving relationship with Jesus by taking of the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, And through that, Adam and Eve realized something about themselves. What do they recognize? They were naked. And even though they tried to sew fig leaves, they tried to make their own robe to cover themselves, they still told God, we're hiding behind this bush because we're naked. Even though they'd already sewed their own fig leaves, they tried to make their own covering. And then God does something really special. We looked at it last week. The end of Genesis chapter 3, God takes... And he makes his own garment of skin to cover their nakedness. That garment that represented Christ and Christ being crucified 
or being slain from the foundation of the world. It was Christ's righteousness alone that could cover the shame that Adam and Eve had. It's only in Christ's righteousness that you and I could ever stand in the presence of a holy God. It's only because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We talked about, though, how it was a very real covering. It was something that when Adam and Eve found that the temperatures were changing outside the Garden of Eden, it was something that that still kept them warm at night. It was something that shielded them from the sun during the day. It was a very real covering that actually changed their experience. In the same way, Christ's robe of righteousness is not just something that, well, we're walking around actually naked, but God sees us in a different way. No, it actually transforms who we are. Can you imagine what that robe was like? Can you imagine? I mean, sometimes you've seen pictures of it. Adam and Eve are dressed in this skin covering, and oftentimes it looks more like something a caveman would wear. Have you seen that before? Now, if God designed this garment of skins for them, do you think it really looked like this primitive caveman type of clothing? I don't know what it looked like, but I imagine that God is the greatest tailor on the planet. I imagine that it looked better than your nicest Armani suit. That I imagine that Adam and Eve might have worn that for the rest of their lives. I don't know, but I imagine that God designed the perfect suit of clothing for Adam and Eve. And he has that in store for you and me. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, where we t- looked last week at what Christ wants to do for his precious bride. He has something special in store. And we're going to notice something in these verses, starting in verse 25, as to how Christ goes about purifying his church. We talked about how important it is, but now we want to get practical and say, okay, how do I have this righteousness by faith, this robe of righteousness in my life? Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might, what? Sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the, what? By the word. It says, Husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ has loved the church. And Christ, in loving the church, what did he do for the church? He sanctified them and cleansed them by what? The washing with the Word. It's the Word that, that, that brings out this precious righteousness, this beauty that, that they are able to, verse 27, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So notice that they're holy, they're without blemish. This church, when Jesus comes back, is a church that's representing the loving character of Jesus because they've been washed with the Word of God. We're living in a time when promises can't be so trusted. Have you noticed that? We look at political candidates on both sides of the aisle and and we hear these amazing promises about what they would do if they were in office and how they would change the entire world around them. And these amazing promises, those of you who have been through a few elections in your life, you know the truth. They're not going to be able to keep them. They're not going to be able to do all this stuff. Once they get into office, they simply aren't going to have the power to accomplish what they're saying that they want to do. 
when I was in high school, actually after high school, I was in, when I was in college, I wanted to start an intramural basketball team. And I had played on a basketball team the previous year, and it hadn't turned out so well for me. We didn't win very many games. So this year I decided, you know what, I'm going to put together a special squad. It's going to do really well this year. And as fate would have it, or something would have it, in walked, in, or in moved to our hall, a man who was about my height, who said that he was an amazing basketball player in high school. Now this guy began to tell me about how he won the MVP trophy. In fact, I think he had a trophy in his room. He began to tell us about how, yeah, he played in this big, uh, big high school in this big city and how he was the best player ever, how he could do a 360 dunk and he was just the, the best basketball player ever. In fact, he tried out, he said, for the or he was going to play on the last year uh, basketball team, but it just wasn't going to work out or something like that. I don't remember what his reasons were, but I thought, here's my opportunity. This guy says he's an amazing basketball player. I should have thought about the fact that if he was such an amazing basketball player, everybody else probably would have recruited them to his ba- their basketball team, but I didn't think about that. I said, okay, you're going to play on my basketball team this year. We're going to form a new basketball team, and we're going to play in the A-League, the difficult league. So I got him, and I got a couple other of my friends from high school, and we put together this team, and he just was telling me how, yeah, just pass me the ball, and it's all going to work out. I'm an amazing basketball player. He made all these promises about what he could do. Well, we got to a week before the games, and people began to tell me, you're not trusting that guy to get you through, are you? said, yeah, I am. Like, just wait and see. I didn't know what they were talking about, but when the game started, I thought, okay, we'll just pass the ball to him. We passed the ball to him. A few seconds later, the ref blows the whistle. Traveling. Every single time that he would get the ball, he would take too many steps without dribbling. The ref would blow the whistle until finally we're like, okay, would you mind sitting on the bench so that we don't have to spend the entire game with the referee blowing the whistle? He didn't follow through on his promises for us. We're used to broken promises in our life. I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of people break promises to me. So when I come to the Bible, when I come to the Word of God and I read promise after promise, I read command after command, when I read what God wants to do in my life, sometimes I look at it and I say, God, It sounds good, but everything in this life that sounds good usually ends up not being true. Maybe even I might believe a lot of it, and I might preach it, but do I really live it? Do I really live as if the promises of God are so incredibly real? Romans chapter 13 tells us something very interesting like we've been talking about. tells us to actually put on Christ, and that this brings us power. Go with me to Romans chapter 13, and we'll look at verse 14. Romans chapter 13 and verse 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. If you just put on Jesus, just like Adam and Eve there in the garden were given robes of skin that represented Jesus being sacrificed for them. Their lives were hidden with Christ in God. 
If you put on Christ, then make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So what is Paul literally saying here? I can't actually wear Jesus. I can't even actually sacrifice a lamb and say that it represents Jesus and wear that around anymore. How do I put on Christ? Elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says it like this. He says, have the mind of Christ. What was it that gave Jesus the ability to live a spotless life? How was it that Jesus had His righteous character that He had? If I want to follow in His footsteps, if I want to have the mind of Christ, if I want to let Him live out His righteous life in me, then I need to live a life like He lived. Go with me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, it begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was God. All things were created through Him. Without Him, nothing was created that was created. It uses this phrase for Jesus calling Him the Word. And then in verse 14, it says something very interesting. It says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here, the Gospel writer is saying He was the Word. He was God's thoughts made audible. Here, Jesus came and He put on flesh. That Word of God became flesh and lived out God's character. And how did Jesus do that? Jesus did it by relying on that same word that he had spoken from eternity past. Go with me to Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, after he's lived for 30 years and he has lived a righteous life, he begins into his ministry, he's baptized, and immediately after being baptized, the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness, and there he meets each temptation that the enemy throws at him. Notice how he meets them in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3. Now when the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus tells Satan when he's trying to deceive him, trying to tempt him to go in a different way, he says, look, what I live by, what man needs to live by is just by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You can live off the Word of God. It's powerful. It's what Hudson Taylor said all of his missionaries, even if he had 300 million of them going off to the inland of China, they could bank on the promises of God. Jesus says, when you face temptation, live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Are you facing temptations in your life that you don't know how to handle? That have knocked you down time and time again, so much so that you say, you know what, this is just who I am. This is just what I'm stuck with. I just have this problem that I don't know how to deal with. I remember the evening quite clearly. I was in the parking lot at the college where I was attending, and my girlfriend and I at the time, not Leah, were having a a discussion that that turned quite angering to me. And, And the anger inside of me welled up to the point where I was out of control. 
I ran to the trunk and I just grabbed what I saw in there. It was a football and I took that football and I slammed it down on the parking lot. The football went bouncing off across the parking lot and I ran off. Later she's like, what got into you? What's wrong with you? What if you actually like, took that kind of anger out on me? I said, I don't know. It's, it was uncontrollable. I was just angry. I had a serious anger problem. I had a temper problem. I remember nights in the dorm after phone conversations that made me rather angry. I actually put a hole in the dorm wall. It wasn't like something that I enjoyed getting angry, but it was something uncontrollable, something that I was so angry that it led me to do things that I regretted. This is something that I'd struggled with for years. I remember back in high school playing basketball, there was a youth pastor who, of all people, shouldn't have been talking trash on the court, right? But sometimes people who should be representing Jesus don't represent Jesus. But he began talking about people, and he began talking about my own family, and pretty soon it made me so angry that at the time out, I went into the locker room, and thankfully I didn't do this to him, but I began to beat the locker in till my fists were bloody and my knuckles were pouring blood. I was out of control. Some of you may not think that Zach Page had a temper problem, but I had a significant temper problem. And I remember as I was in college and I was realizing, you know what, I've got an issue here. I'm angry. I say things that hurt people. I lash out at people. I, I have this, this problem where the anger just comes up inside of me and it's uncontrollable. I don't know what to do about it. Maybe you've had that problem or maybe you have other situations where you say it's just out of my control. I lose control. I don't know what to do. And I just do this thing over and over. And I know it hurts Jesus, but I don't know how to stop it. I didn't know how to find an answer to my problem. But I did know that there was a chapter in the Bible that beautifully described the love of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 begins by just saying, if we speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love that we're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I thought, you know what, God, that really describes me. I'm, I'm living a life that's meaningless. It says, even if we have the gift of prophecy and we know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if we have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, we are Nothing. God, those are some amazing things, things that I'd love to do. I'd love to have that kind of faith. I'd love to, to be able to have that kind of knowledge, but God, I really am nothing because I don't have that love in my heart. It goes on to say, even if we give our bodies to be burned, if we give all of our possessions to feed the poor, we surrender our body to be burned, but we do not have love, it profits us nothing. And it goes on to say, love is patient, love is kind. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. And day by day, as I woke up in the morning, you know what? I, I said, I need this love in my life. So I began to read 1 Corinthians 13. Every single morning, I'd read that same chapter. Read it over and over. And i say, God, won't you give me this love in my life? Because I need it. I'm an angry person. I'm not a nice person. I'm not somebody that I'd want to be around. Can't you change who I am? You know, it's funny. I remember there were some days later on, even when I had begun in ministry, and 
God had changed me in a lot of ways. I was a lot more loving. But I remember the days when I'd especially be asking God, God, would you fill me with more of that love? Because that's what means more than anything else. That's what's more important than anything else. And it would be on those days that that person would come around me who I could not stand. And they would be saying things and doing things to Leah that made me feel righteous about my anger. Made me feel righteous about lashing out at them. I began to realize that God was just giving me opportunities to trust in His promises. To trust in His righteousness. To trust in the power of His Word. When Jesus was there in the wilderness, He didn't just flex His muscles and say, you know what? Satan, I'm not going to do that because that's wrong. No! He went to the Bible. He went to Bible verses that he'd memorized and he said, it is written. Do we have Scripture that available to us? That in any temptation that we face, the first response of our mind is, you know what? It is written and I'm not going that way. Do we rely on the promises of God like Jesus relied on on the promises of the Bible? Do we know the promises of the Bible like Jesus knew the promises of the Bible? You read through the book of Matthew and again and again in Jesus' life it says, and Jesus went and did this that it might be fulfilled which was written. Jesus lived His life based on the Word of God. He made decisions based on the Word of God, based on the promises of God. That was the source of the power in Jesus' life. And Jesus actually prayed for you and I. Did you know that? In John chapter 17. And He prayed specifically for you and I to have that same power of the Word of God in our lives. Go with me to John chapter 17. Here, Jesus is praying for those who would believe in the words of the disciples. John chapter 17, and we'll start in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Because I don't pray that you take away all of their temptations, that you take them out of living where they're living. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but instead that you shield them from the enemy, that you shield them from the evil one. How? Verse 16 continues, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. How is Jesus not of the world? Verse 17 says, sanctify them, cleanse them. That same word used in Ephesians chapter 5, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for me and He prayed that we would be sanctified and that we would be sanctified through the Word of God. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by what? The truth. You see, Jesus lived this life of living by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God, of clinging to the promises of His Father. He lived this life of victory of being sanctified, of living a holy life so that you too could have the same victory standing on His promises. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't the Word of God powerful? But 
like I said before, so often it's hard for us to trust the promises. So often we look at somebody like Hudson Taylor and say, how could Hudson Taylor have that kind of faith when the promises of God, I mean, so many promises are broken. We can't trust people's promises. How can we really live with that kind of faith in the promises of God? How do we have that kind of trust? Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God itself has the power to increase your faith as you immerse yourself in the Word of God. As the Word of God becomes a part of your very being, as you know Scripture for yourself, it transforms who you are. I can testify to this in my own experience. There are many areas that I still need victory in my life, but having an out-of-control temper is something that God transformed in my life And it was through Jesus ministering to me through the power of His Word. I didn't even intentionally try to memorize 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but as I read it day in and day out, and it became a fabric of my being, of what I thought, God began to plant a little bit more, a little bit more of that patient love in my heart so that I stopped being so ridiculous when I was angry. God wants to do the same thing in our lives when we're facing anger problems, when we're facing lust problems, when we're facing difficult times and we're not sure how to handle them, when we're facing uh, financial struggles, whatever we're facing, the Word of God has power to see us through. That's what our scripture reading said, didn't it? Go there again with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is so beautiful. 2 Peter chapter 1. Sam was here before he came up to read the scripture reading. He's saying, that scripture... It's powerful. It's an amazing scripture. It really is. And if we live this out, it's the key for victory. It's the key for living a life that is so close to Jesus. Second Peter chapter 1. We'll start in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's how grace, that's how peace comes into your life. You're struggling with anxiety. You're struggling with stress about work, about family, about financial things. You're wondering how you're going to make it, how you can keep going on in life. Grace and peace come through knowing God, through knowing Jesus. Grace and peace are multiplied in our hearts. That's what I began to find. That anger dissipated, knowing Jesus, knowing that I could trust Jesus. When people mistreated me, that it wasn't about how they're treating me, But it's not about me anymore. It's about Jesus. I'm crucified with Christ, Paul said, so I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But then verse 3, it continues, explaining how this knowledge is so powerful in multiplying grace and peace in our lives. It says, as his divine power has given to us, how many things? All things that pertain to life, and godliness. Peter says, God has given you absolutely everything that you need for life, for godliness, for living like Jesus, for loving like Jesus, for loving that neighbor who's difficult to love, for loving that person at work who's difficult to love. God has given you all that you need for this. His divine power has provided it through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Then verse 4 gives us a little bit more. He keeps breaking it down a little bit more for us. By which have been given to us 
exceedingly great and precious promises. The Bible is full of promises. Have you noticed it? Promises of what God longs to do in our life. And even the commands that God gives us. For example, like when Jesus says in Matthew 5.46, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's a promise of what Jesus wants to do in your life. It's not just something that you have to go and find the strength to do. The Ten Commandments, when, even when it talks about the Sabbath, that's there is a promise of the beautiful rest that Jesus wants to give you from all the work, all the care, all the concern that you face on a daily basis. He's given us these great and exceedingly precious promises. And then notice this, that through these, how? Through these promises, through these promises that are great and magnificent and precious, these beautiful promises that are throughout Scripture, through those promises, meaning you can't just have these promises sitting on the shelf. You can't just know about these promises. But this is an active faith. This is taking these promises and actually implementing them in your life. Making them a reality in your life. Like Hudson Taylor saying, all I need is to take the Bible and go with the Bible and that will see me through. Through these promises, look at what it says. You may be what? Partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Maybe you've read that verse too many times on speed read mode. Because that's astounding. God is saying to you, I want you to actually become a partaker of divine nature. I want to actually put my nature in you. And how is it going to take place? It takes place as you have the promises of God in your life, as you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I want to actually put myself in you and live out my life in you through the promises of God. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see the power of these promises that Jesus has given us Promises like uh, Psalm chapter 18, verse 32. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. You know, this past week I went on a backpacking trip with Matt Giese. If you ever want to go on a tough hiking trip, go with Matt Giese. He's an, an animal when it comes to hiking. Well, one morning we woke up and suddenly he gets this awesome idea, which I'm very thankful for, that we're going to backtrack and we're going to make a loop instead of backtracking the way that we were going to go before. And we were going to actually cross several high passes, about 12,000 feet. We were going to hike all day, about 10 miles or so, with our, our backpacks on, with everything that we had, above 11,000 feet elevation pretty much the entire day. We were hopping over boulders most of the way and climbing up uh, the different ridges and stuff. Amazing day. A beautiful day. If you ever want to go on an amazing hike, go with him. But as we we're starting out, that day I had read Psalm chapter 18, verse 32, which says, It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. And then the next verse says, And he makes my feet like hind's feet, or like deer's feet. He sets my feet on high places. I said, Matt, we need this promise today. We're going up, and I'm not sure how we're going to make it, or at least how I'm going to make it. So I need this promise today. Let's keep this in mind. Let's claim this promise. And God was faithful to us. God saw us through. I remember hopping on some boulders and you have these big boulders that begin to shift and you're like, I hope this doesn't go off on top of him or I hope that this doesn't break my ankle. 
But we made it through just fine, and it was one of the most beautiful hikes I've ever been on. God's promises have power, but not just for a hike above 11,000 feet elevation. God's promises have power for you when you're going through life's boulder field. When you're hopping from rock to rock and you feel like you just can't take it. When you feel like you can't carry the weight anymore. You remember the promise that God has given you. Cast all your cares upon me for I care for you. When you're struggling financially, you remember the promises that if you seek first His kingdom, all these things will be added unto you. When you're struggling with lust, you remember this promise that we're looking at right now that you can escape the corruption that is in the world through lust by His promises, by the magnificent promises which allow you to become partakers of the divine nature. There's power in a simple it is written. There's power in it because through this Word, God created everything that you and I see around us. There's not a speck on this planet that wasn't created through the Word and the power of God. Every living thing came into existence with a simple, let it be. And in your life, when God speaks, it has creative power. When He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, that promise, created me a clean heart, has the power to actually create that heart in you, to give you a pure heart. Because here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible actually tells us that there is something impossible for God. I'm not going to look at it in detail today, but Hebrews chapter 6, I believe it is, tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. Did you know that? There's something impossible for God. God will never lie. It's impossible for God to lie because if God right now said there is a purple elephant in the back of the Templeton Hills Church, we would look back there and it, there would actually be a purple elephant back there because God could create it through His Word. God will not lie. And because of that, every promise in the book has power in your life because it actually will create the reality that you read there. That's what Peter is saying here. He says, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He says you can actually partake of the divine nature. Earlier in uh, his first letter that Peter wrote, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter said this about the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll go to verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That's what I wanted as a college student with an anger problem. I wanted to love, but I didn't know how, and so I began to go to the Word of God on a daily basis. Verse 23, having been born again. That's what we all need. We need to become new people. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. You see, it's through the Word of God. The Word of God, Peter says, is like seed. As you put that seed in your heart, it actually bears fruit. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 15, you are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. The Word has cleansing power. It has renewing power. It transforms who we are. 
Jesus said in John 17, you are sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Do you want to be sanctified by the word of God? Do you want to be renewed through the word of God? Do you want to be recreated into a new person? Do you want to have faith like Hudson Taylor to be able to say, look, all we need is a promise of God and we could go as missionaries to the most difficult place on the planet trusting in a simple promise of the Word of God. He's faithful to His promises. I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks ago I stood up here and I said, I don't know how Leah and I are going to be able to give this offering that we've pledged. We've already emptied our savings account and at this point I don't foresee how we're going to be able to do this by the time camp meeting comes. But I said I knew that 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8 says, but God is able to make all grace abound towards you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good work. And that promise is one you can take to the bank. He will provide for you. And friends, I'm here this morning to say God is faithful. That pledge has been paid and it was paid on time. Because He is faithful. His grace does abound. His Word is trustworthy. Will you trust in the Word of God? Because it is seed. As you plant that seed in your heart, not sowing fig garments on yourself, but sowing the seeds of the Word of God in your life, it has a transformative power. In Christ's Object Lessons, page 38, it says, The Word of God is the seed. Every seed has in itself a germinating principle. In it, the life of the plant is enfolded. So there is life in God's Word. There's actual life in God's Word. Christ says, The word that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John 6.63 He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life. John 5.24 In every command, don't miss this, and in every promise of the Word of God is the power the very life of God, by which the command may be fulfilled and the promise realized. He who by faith receives the word is receiving the very life and character of God. Let that sink in. For by these promises you may become partakers of the divine nature, the life the character of God can actually come into your life and transform you to live a life of love like Jesus lived through every promise of the Word of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? Jesus wants to do that to you and I as His precious bride. He wants to put those beautiful garments on Him to prepare for His coming and He wants to wash us by His Word as we sow seeds of faith in our hearts. As we sow the seeds of His Word in our heart, it will bear fruit into a loving character like Christ. In the Review and Herald, April 10, 1888, it says this, Build a wall of Scriptures around you, and you will see that the world cannot break it down. Commit the Scriptures to memory, and then throw right back upon Satan when he comes with his temptations. It is written. This is the way that our Lord met the temptations of Satan. And resisted them. And that is how you and I can meet the temptations of Satan and resist them. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. When we hide God's word in our heart, when we memorize it, when we immerse ourselves in it, when we treat it like the life power that it is, 
It gives us victory over sin. And sin is what separates us from a loving relationship with Jesus. Sin is what takes peace away from us, what takes away all of our joy in life. But when we rely on the promises of God, when we know them for ourselves, we don't have to live that life anymore. I remember when I was struggling with the, uh, a problem of lust, Psalm 119 became really important to me. Psalm 119, I believe it's verse 9, says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. There's power in the word of God to give us a pure life, to give us a pure heart. Like the psalmist said, to create in us a clean heart. So I want to challenge you. Immerse yourself every day in the Word of God. I just want to put a few tips for sowing on the screen. The first tip is to immerse yourself in the Bible every day. Treat it like your life. Treat it like being as important as eating three meals a day. Make sure that you're eating the Word of God. When you're walking along and have the Bible on your phone, when you have a a minute in the doctor's office, read the Bible on your phone. Immerse yourself in the Bible. The more of the Bible you have, the more of Jesus you have in your life. Revelation 3 tells us that Jesus is knocking on the door of Laodicea's heart. Friends, the way that Jesus is pounding on your heart and my heart is through His Word. And it's as we pick up this Word that we give Jesus that invitation to come in and we become partakers of the divine nature. Jesus becomes, is able to live in our hearts in a more real and living way. The next challenge is to memorize Scripture every day. There's a variety of ways to do this. You might think, well, I try to memorize uh, memory verses in the Scab School quarterly, and it just didn't work out for me. You don't understand. I don't have a good memory. I want to give you a promise. Uh, David Asterix was one of the first ones I heard talking about this. But John chapter 14, verse 26 says, but I'm going to send you another helper, uh, the Holy Spirit, and he will bring to your remembrance all things which I have taught you. Pray for the Holy Spirit to increase your memory, to remind you of the things which Jesus has taught you. And He'll do it for you. But here's some other practical tips when it comes to memorizing Scripture. Now, Scripture songs, I remember as a kid when I'd be riding down the road, my mom would have the DVD, uh, CDs in or the tapes in, maybe it was at that time, listening to Scripture songs. And I was like, Mom, I don't know what you can call this music. This, this, I'm not sure this qualifies as music. It just doesn't quite flow. It just doesn't feel good. But you know, today, I spend a lot of time listening to Scripture songs because I have found that it is so effective at implanting in my mind the Word of God. And when I'm in that moment of anxiety, when that song comes back in my mind, it brings me so much peace. It brings me so much confidence and faith in Jesus that I can't get enough Scripture songs in anymore. So I just have two websites there for you that have some great scripture song resources. The first one is totally free, scripturesongsforworship.com. Esther Mui has a lot of different, they're actually quite well done uh, scripture songs. You can see them on YouTube also. The second one is Trilogy Scripture Resources, and if you click on uh, the scripture songs there, that's by Derek and Bodell Morris. Derek Morris is now the, the president of the Hope Channel, if any of you have watched that before. But he and his wife and another lady have some great scripture songs that they put together. There's several CDs that they have, the ones that I used to kind of make fun of, but now I realize they're powerful. They changed my life. 
They help me to, to have Jesus in my heart in a powerful way because his word becomes more living to me and I'm able to remember it. Another thing, you can use your phone or a computer to, to use an app or a program for scripture memorization. I like to use this app called Scripture Typer and I use it pretty much every day. ScriptureTyper.com is a place you can go and you can either see this app or you can also get on a memorization program. And it has lists of scripture there that you can memorize if you're dealing with fear. If you're wanting more joy in your life, you're wanting more love, you can click on that list and it'll add it to your list of ones to be memorized. And once you've memorized the verse for one day, then the next day it'll remind you. And then it'll be two days later. Pretty soon it's a week later. Then it reminds you two weeks later. Because I don't know about you, but in... in uh, Sabbath school, I used to memorize a verse during the week, and then you get your sticker, and then you forget the memory verse. You need to keep going back over it. Keep immersing yourself. Keep remembering the promises of God. One year, I had the goal of memorizing 365 verses, just doing one every day on this app. And it was such a rich blessing to me. Now I don't do one every, every day anymore. I have about 800 on here that I I work through and I'm usually behind on keeping up with them, but it's okay because it's the Word of God and it's transforming my mind. Friends, there's nothing more important than having the Word of God in your life because by these promises, these magnificent, exceedingly magnificent and precious promises, you and I can become partakers of the divine nature. There's nothing more important than that. Everything else pales in comparison to that. You watch the Olympics, you see how hard they're willing to work, how much training it takes to do what they do, how, much, how many hours in the day it takes, and yet how often do we find it difficult to take time to train ourselves to know the Word of God. I want to commit to knowing Jesus. I want to commit to being a partaker of the divine nature. How about you? I want that power in my life. I want to stand on the promises of Christ my Savior. If it's your desire to take a step forward, to actually increase. Now, if you already have a great program that you feel good about, you're already immersing yourself in the Bible, you're already memorizing Scripture, don't stand. Uh, we understand that you already have it mastered. But for those of you like me who say, I want to take this to the next level. I want to increase my partaking of the divine nature through His precious promises. I want to invite you to stand with me as I pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for not leaving us without a guide and a light in this dark world. Thank You that we can live by every word that proceeds out of Your mouth. Thank you that there is life, there is power there. And it's not just life and power that's separate from us, but it's life and power that you actually want to fill us with. You want to empower us and energize us by to live this beautiful life of love that you've called us to live. Father, please fill us with faith in your word. Fill us with a hunger for your word. Lord, may we sense that we're missing out when we go for a day without your word. May we feel it more than we feel our hunger pains. Father, give us a hunger for Jesus as revealed in Scripture. 
Thank you so much that we can trust in your word. Bless my friends as they go out to immerse themselves in the Bible, as they go out to memorize your promises to become partakers of the divine nature. Father, fill them with your Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.